You're listening to the Rocky Mountain Review for Thursday, May 5th, 2022. I'm Cutter Babcock. And I'm Ellie Shannon. And you're tuned into KCSU Fort Collins. Welcome to the final episode featuring Ellie Shannon and myself. On today's show, Kira McKinley goes over campus news with updates on the implementation of NetID. Then, Ellie Shannon covers local news with details on Windsor widening more roads. Coda Babcock goes over new updates in COVID-19 statistics and policies, and then speaks to Colorado State Representative Lisa Cutter about wildfire prevention legislation. Then I go over information on the investigation into the leaking of Supreme Court drafts and how one hospital is being sued for racism leading to the death of a black woman. After that, we hear from Matthew Myers of the Campaign for Tobacco-Free Kids about prohibition on menthol cigarettes and flavored cigars. Eliza Drotar goes over updates in CSU sports, including details on Rams football. To conclude today's show, I explain updates on technology with details on SpaceX. Let's move right into campus and local news. This is Kira McKinley reporting our campus news for Thursday, May 5th. Currently, Colorado State University uses an EID system, which will change in July. The school will replace EID with a new system called NetID. The EID system is about 22 years old, and this new system will provide students with faster updates and improved security measures, according to Jack Miller of the Collegian. In addition to this, NetID will allow CSU Fort Collins and CSU Pueblo to share the same system. CSU Pueblo has been using this system since January 2021 and has yet to experience any issues. Stefan Eichel, a professor at Colorado State University, and his team are researching why middle-aged and older adults are increasingly developing depressive disorders, according to CSU Source News. Eichel and his team are researching this dilemma by, quote, using a machine learning approach to analyze data from a large population representative sample model of middle-aged and older adults by, quote, using a machine learning approach to analyze data from a large population representative sample of middle-aged and older European adults, end quote. The team tested a myriad of variables and found that social isolation was the highest risk factor. The other top risk factors were mobility difficulties and poor health. Eichel claimed that the reason social isolation was the highest risk factor was not because of if a person kept in contact with people, but how they did. He claims that feelings of physical proximity to others can cause these depressive disorders. In other news, the CSU Spring 2020 semester is coming to a close. If you are a student at CSU who is looking to sign up for summer classes, it's not too late. CSU will be having four, eight, and 12-week term options. The first term begins May 15th. To register for classes, go to RamWeb. Thank you for listening to my CSU campus news updates. I'm Kara McKinley, and you're listening to 90.5 KCSU Fort Collins. This is Ellie Shannon with your local news. Nearly 40 Colorado State University students, once part of the Pi Kappa Phi fraternity, are looking for a temporary place to stay after the building they were in had faulty plumbing. The students were still living in the off-campus building, and now a red, city sign posted out front says the structure is no longer fit for human occupancy. The building owner said they are working on resolving the issue. Windsor is planning to widen two more pieces of the commuter-heavy Colorado Highway 392. Last year, the town spent $2.5 million to add through lanes, turn lanes, and bike lanes at the intersection of Colorado 392 and Larimer County Road 5, which is just east of Interstate 25. According to Miles Bloomhart of the Coloradoan, this intersection has seen increased traffic over the past year due to Kector Road being closed but that road is expected to open again in the next two weeks.
that's all for your local news. Thanks for listening to my local news updates throughout the year. Make sure to tune in to the Rocky Mountain Review to hear Portia Cook and Kira McKinley in August. I'm Ellie Shannon, and this is KCSU on 90.5 FM. We'll be right back. Support for KCSU comes from Brothers Barbecue. Brothers Barbecue is located on South Taft Road in Fort Collins and offers catering and party planning options. Brothers Barbecue serves smoked in-house meats, ribs, sandwiches, and vegetarian options. For more information, visit brothers-bbq.com. We're back on the Rocky Mountain Review. If you missed any part of campus and local news with Kira McKinley and Ellie Shannon, check out our podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts to listen back. I'm Kuta Babcock, and these are COVID-19 updates for Thursday. Colorado State University reports over 8,400 COVID-19 cases since reporting began in May 2020. Five new cases were reported yesterday among students, with three new cases reported among staff and faculty at CSU. Masks are no longer required on CSU's Fort Collins campus, with the exception of some buildings, like the CSU Health Network. Larimore County reports low COVID-19 community transmission levels, along with over 82,000 COVID-19 cases and 492 deaths, meaning that five community members have died from COVID-19 since Tuesday's episode. The county's seven-day case rate is around 150 cases per 100,000 residents, based on data reported this morning. 8% of tests administered in Larimore County came back positive in the past week, and new COVID-19 hospital admissions remain low. COVID-19 patients take up just under 1% of local inpatient hospital beds. The state of Colorado reports over 1.3 million cases of COVID-19, along with over 13,000 deaths. Over 4.8 million people receive testing in Colorado, with overall hospitalization at around 62,000. 10.6 million vaccines have been administered in the state, and over 4 million Coloradans are fully vaccinated. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention reports over 81.4 million cases of COVID-19 and over 993,000 deaths nationally. Over 82% of the eligible U.S. population is at least partially vaccinated against COVID-19. Cases are increasing nationally, while deaths are steadily decreasing. I'm Coda Babcock, and that's all for Thursday's COVID-19 updates. Information from this segment comes from Colorado State University, Larimer County, the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment, and the CDC. If you are a student, staff member, or faculty member at CSU, visit covid.colostate.edu to submit vaccine information and get the most recent information on COVID-19 at the university. House Bill 1132, which would require notification to proper authorities for wildfire mitigation procedures like controlled burning, passed the House earlier this week with nearly unanimous support. 
At the moment, State Bill 2 is making its way through Colorado's Congress to increase resources to volunteer firefighters, helping to better prepare the state as we approach the most vulnerable time of year for wildfires. Today, I'm joined by Representative Lisa Cutter to discuss what these bills mean for our communities and those helping to manage and prevent wildfires. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much, Coda, for having me and for your interest in this. These two bills are just part of a, a package, really, of wildfire uh, mitigation and suppression bills that we're running this year. We know um, that wildfires are increasing in frequency and intensity. We know this is because of climate change, and this is going to continue to be a, a big problem for our state. Um, air quality, there's all kinds of impacts um, because of wildfire. And so we've been working really hard um, to address that on a number of levels. It's going to take a lot of different solutions to uh, to tackle this problem. Last summer, I was the chair of the wildfire interim um, committee. So we got to talk about the, all these issues in a great deal of depth and, and sort of explore what sort of things we needed to do. So I'm particularly excited about several of these. Senate Bill 002 is the one dealing with volunteers. And I'm, I'm really excited about that because Depending on the locality, we have sometimes up to 80% of our uh, firefighters are volunteers. If you can believe that 80% in some of these areas and some of my mountain communities that I represent, I've heard from several of them and, and we heard during our committee work that they don't always have the resources they need to really do their jobs properly. I mean, things like having outdated equipment and suits that are, are were not made for them originally. That's just shocking to me. So this bill is going to address that. We're providing funding, ongoing grant funding for uh, departments to apply for volunteers specifically to update their equipment and training. Another aspect is the very first year as a legislator, one of my constituents reached out and said, you know, we don't even get reimbursed for mileage. time away from work. Sometimes these people are, are fighting fires in their own neighborhoods, in their own communities. They might actually lose their home and be on the fire for days and not get reimbursed for just basic expenses. So this bill allows that. So I was really happy that I could address this constituent in particular, even though I don't remember his name anymore. Um, but I hope he's listening somewhere and, and knows we're doing something for him finally. And um, the other thing, oh, behavioral health. This is a big problem we're seeing across all sectors. It's a big conversation at the legislature, much like wildfire. We're in behavioral health crisis and firefighters certainly are at the forefront of that, all first responders. So we've provided some funding for them to directly get the behavioral health they need from people who understand the kind of support they need as someone on the front lines. So I'm really excited about that. And the other bill you mentioned has to do with just notifying local authorities when you're doing controlled burns. That's also a really, controlled burns are really important. They're an important part of the process, but it's also really important that all the proper safeguards are, you know, taken and that people are aware when these are happening because things can get out of control pretty quickly if they're not monitored. Thank you so much for that background. So as wildfires are destroying our nearby state of New Mexico due to severe winds and causing issues throughout southern Colorado, what do you think these bills do not only to prevent new burns in our state, but also take care of the people really working in those devastating conditions through the behavioral health plan? These bills are just two in a big package, and it's going to take a lot of things to, to tackle this problem. So, I, you know, I think that, that people that are on the front lines and having to deal with this all the time need every bit of support they can get. So 
So we're providing them with the training, the resources, and again, that behavioral mental health piece, which I think is so important. And I'm really particularly glad that we've begun to talk about that more openly and to acknowledge that our first responders in particular have a really hard time and they have a lot of trauma they have to overcome. I've done some other work in that mental health and crisis response space, and I I think it's really important that we provide firefighters every tool they need. It's not okay that we're putting them on the line to do this really important, difficult job without supporting them in every single way. So, you know, hopefully, hopefully these bills will, you know, go a long way towards that. Kind of on that topic, how has the state previously really supported local fire de- volunteer fire departments? How do these bills shift the recognition of their efforts into something more meaningful? I mean, I think the state is always, and certainly we always have firefighters in our minds and our, our hearts and, and want to do whatever we can to support them. So I'm not going to say we've done a bad job in the past. I just want to reflect that we are drilling down now. And we're really trying to, or doubling down, I guess, we're really trying to address that because we know that we don't have a workforce. I mean, again, that conversation is coming up in so many different sectors here at the Capitol. If we don't have a workforce to do these important jobs, then nothing else is going to matter. No other supports or funding we put towards this is going to matter. So I'm, I'm really proud to be part of that effort. So a lot of the support from the state for the volunteer firefighters bill involves financial support rather than changing how things run in general. So why do you think that offering funding is essential to ensuring the success of volunteer fire departments and making sure that they have the resources to really change those things on their own? That is a great question, Coda. So we're a local control state. And I mean, I think that's really important to understand every corner of the state has different needs and different, you know, based on their their local government structure, but then also based on firefighting, based on the train and, you know, what other kind of factors you consider in that. And so it's important for us to be able to provide them with the flexibility to do what they need to do in their communities to take care of, you know, take care of the firefighters and wildfire mitigation and all of those things. All right. And then how do you think that legislation to further support volunteer firefighters ultimately supports all firefighting and crisis management staff throughout the wildfire seasons in Colorado? You know, they're the they're the core. They're the backbone. Right. So by providing them with the equipment they need, you know, suits and the mental supports, they're just going to be that much stronger part of their team. So, you know, I think I think that's just critical that we do that. And we've got a number of other fire wildfire bills that I think, again, they all kind of play together to provide the support. Certainly when we provide funding for um, critical resources, that in any way, that helps the firefighters. It gives them all kinds of tools to um, be able to go out and do their job. So we're providing some different funding mechanisms um, that we're excited about, a state, a state match program where... Um, I'm really excited about that one as well, where communities, local um, governments and and their departments can apply for a state match as long as they have some ongoing dedicated source of funding, which is really important. There's lots of grants for wildfire mitigation and, and suppression work. But this one in particular requires communities to come along and to to sort of have some skin in the game. So they have to provide some kind of ongoing funding and commitment to this work um, through a number of different uh, ways. But we just want to make sure that that we're leveraging state dollars because they're not infinite. (laughs) You know, we all have finite resources. So we're leveraging state dollars and ensuring that um, local governments are sort of part of the process and communities understand that they have to be part of the solution as well.
All right. And then I noticed that while these bills were nearly unanimous, there were a few representatives that did not vote for them. Can you explain some of the reasoning behind those decisions? Oh, Coda, I wish I could. <laughs> we, you know, I mean, people have a, a lot of different reasons. I think some people um, don't believe in small government and just don't believe in funding a lot of things. So you see that a lot, even though fundamentally they they aren't you know, against firefighters or whatever. They just they just think it should come from different places. I mean, it's it's hard to understand sometimes, really, but. Tell me about some of those other bills that are working their way through that are part of this more grand effort to really support firefighters. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I told you about the state match program. I'm excited about that. We're um, also funding, there's a, a program. Oh, I'm not going to be able to remember how to say it. it's It's called Furworm. So it's a lot of words. <laughs> we, we pack into a little acronym there, Furworm. That is the, the main state um, mitigation funding program. And so we're um, actually adding $8 million to that this year. There's been some um, some work. I um what else is there that's been? Oh, we're doing another bill that came out of the wildfire committee that has to do with outreach and education. So, you know, that's part of it as well. There's wildfire awareness month and they have very, very um, few resources. The state forest service has very few resources to promote that. So we're providing some funding for them so that they can do a better job um, of getting out and reaching communities and telling them about the wildfire danger and and what they need to do to help mitigate about and prepare for that. So I think that's huge. I'm, I come from a background in public relations. So I think information and education and raising awareness is big because um, if people understand, then I think, you know, most people want to be part of the solution and want to come along and do what they can do to um, to address problems. So we just have to, to help them understand. So that, that's a really exciting program. Another one uh, is sort of a simpler bill, but I'm excited about it is, um, the, and it also came out of our welfare committee. It's, um, we're requiring the state forest service to have, um, to create a carbon sequestration framework so that when they do their work, they're using, um, you know, forest management work. They're using best practices in terms of managing carbon. I mean, it's a really complicated cycle, right? Where, um, you know, wildfires create more, you know, create more issues. And then, um, I don't know, it, it's, it's all a, a climate change issue. And so uh, we're excited about that. They're going to hire, they're going to hire a person to administer that program and, and hopefully look at it more with an eye towards um, the science behind it and how to mitigate for climate change. So as you were discussing mitigation, many conversations around fighting wildfires really often relate to rebuilding damaged spaces and doing crisis management. And while these issues are super important, how do you think that these bills really make Colorado's future approach to wildfires more balanced in terms of including prevention, treatment and recovery all in the plan? Oh, wow. That's a really that's really interesting to think about. Um, I think that. Yeah, can actually, can I get you to ask me that question again? I want to make sure I'm for sure. Sorry, I moved my hand away from the microphone. Um, so many conversations around fighting wildfire often relate to rebuilding damaged spaces and doing more of the crisis management work. So while both of those issues are important, how do you think that these bills make Colorado's future approach to wildfires more balanced in terms of including prevention, treatment, and rec- and recovery within them? Yeah, I um, I appreciate that. It is it's a uh, we have we do have to look at all those things, right? And I think I think that our approach right now um, 
is really focusing on the mitigation work because we know that when we, I mean, we address all of those things, suppression, they're all important. And then rebuilding, of course, that's a whole, that's a whole other story with building codes and, and looking at um, best practices. Um, but really, if we can devote more dollars that go to mitigation um, are multiplied, right? There's, there's a bigger impact in the long run. So we're really focusing a lot on mitigation in our conversations and discussion around wildfire. And that's not, I mean, certainly every piece of the, the puzzle is important, but um, all, the, all the resources we put towards mitigation um, pay off exponentially in the long run. And, you know, again, that awareness for people. Mitigation means mitigating um, your own home space. It means local governments and communities mitigating on a broader scale in communities. So it's it's everybody. All right. And then do you have anything else that you would like to add about these bills and the general effort to really work on improving the state's wildfire legislation? Well, I just I just want to reiterate that everyone is very focused on this. I mean, it's it's really, it's been something I think about a lot. And I represent a, um, a community in the WUI, the Wildlife Urban Interface and um, Wildland Urban Interface. And I, so it's been on my mind as a legislator ever since I, I came to the Capitol. And I know many, many people care about this issue, but it it has really become more important, I think, over the last year or so. It's just it's accelerated so quickly, I think, especially with the Marshall Fire. And now people are really realizing that, um, hey, you know, my communities in Evergreen and Conifer are some of the highest risk communities in the country for risk of um, property loss and, and lives lost to wildfire. And certainly those communities are at risk, but now, you know, other communities along the front range. You know, I live at the base of the um, of the foothills and I'm thinking, wow, you know, we've had some little wildfires um, nearby. And, and I think and before I wouldn't have even considered that that would be, you know, a crisis. But now we all recognize that Marshall Fire really so uh, tragically and unfortunately brought that home to people. And so I think, um, yeah, I think at the legislature, we're reflecting that and we're responding to that and we're doing everything we possibly can to look at the problem holistically and approach it in, in um, a number of ways so that we can uh, get a handle on this moving forward. All right. Thank you so much for your time again, Representative Cutter. <laughs> thank, thank you. I really appreciate your interest in all the great questions. Yes, of course. For those just tuning in, that was Representative Lisa Cutter from the Colorado House of Representatives. She joined us today to discuss wildfire bills which are working their way through the legislature. We'll be right back with national news.
Hey, what's up? It's DJ Marmalade from Tea Party, a weekly Thursday show from 1 to 3 p.m. where we can kick back in our fancy armchairs, sip some Earl Grey tea, and listen to some hot tunes. And we're back on the Rocky Mountain Review. I'm Kuda Babcock for KCSU News, and you're listening to National News for Thursday. The following story describes graphic medical details and discusses racism involved in medical malpractice and wrongful death. This story is about one minute in length. Cedar sinai Medical Center is being sued by the husband of a black woman who died after childbirth due to racism. Brian Melly from the Associated Press reports that Charles Johnson IV, husband of Kira Dixon Johnson, is bringing his case to the Los Angeles Superior Court next week. Charles Johnson said he noticed a disparity in care between white women and black women at the well-known hospital. And in a news conference, he said, quote, The reality is that on April 12, 2016, when we walked into Cedars-Sinai Hospital for what we expected to be the happiest day of our lives, the greatest fear that Kira Dixon Johnson faced was racism, end quote. She died around 12 hours after having a cesarean section. The C-section was performed in 17 minutes, and attorney Nicholas Rowley said, quote, It shocked everybody that we deposed, all the healthcare providers, even the head of obstetrics there. The head of labor and delivery looked at it and said, No, I've never seen one done that fast, end quote. Kira Dixon Johnson and her husband told medical staff of concerns following the surgery as she showed signs of internal bleeding. She was not readmitted to the operating room until nearly 90% of her blood had made its way to her stomach. The marshal of the Supreme Court has been directed to investigate the leak of the drafted opinion to overturn Roe v. Wade by the High Court. Rachel Treisman at National Public Radio reports that the marshal investigating the breach spent much of her career as an Army lawyer. Supreme Court marshals regularly handle issues of security, but this typically involves building and entrance security rather than the safety of documents. Colonel Gail Curley, the current marshal, will be assigned to track down the source of the breach despite no crime being involved in the draft's leak. Curley is the second woman to hold a Supreme Court marshal position, and she manages over 200 employees in her role. She graduated from West Point, a prestigious military school, and has the authority to make some arrests if needed in this case. It is unlikely that she'll be assigned to arrest or assist in prosecution in this case, though, as NPR correspondent Carrie Johnson says, quote, This is not a national security issue. This is not a national security issue. This is not classified information. So it doesn't seem like there's any crime here, end quote. William Todd Wilson, a member of the Oath Keepers Militia from North Carolina, pleaded guilty to charges of seditious conspiracy and obstruction Wednesday. Jan Wall from Reuters reports that the hearing took place in Washington, D.C. and is linked to several other cases charging capital rioters of seditious conspiracy, which is defined as attempting to, quote, overthrow, put down, or to destroy by force the government of the United States, end quote. Around 800 people have received some type of charge for participating in the January 6th attack in 2021, where Congress was targeted and only narrowly escaped violence while finalizing election results. Wilson was the third member of the Oath Keepers to plead guilty to his charges of sedition and obstruction. Oath Keepers founder Stuart Rhodes is also expected to be put on trial later this year based on an indictment unsealed in January. After wildfires continue to force residents out of the state, New Mexico's governor requested for President Joe Biden to declare a state of disaster. Tory B. Powell from CBS News reports that Governor Michelle Lujan Grissom Michelle Lujan Grissom's disaster request would provide housing assistance, counseling, and funds to survivors of wildfires that have been forced to evacuate. Continued windy, dry conditions have enabled fires to continue spreading across New Mexico. Over 1,200 personnel currently are responding to fire areas near Galena's Canyon in New Mexico. 
The largest fire in the area has taken at least 166 homes and forced over 6,000 people to evacuate the area. The Hermit's Peak and Calf Canyon fire merged, creating a massive blaze of around 160,000 acres on Wednesday. Just 20% of the fire is contained. Two other large fires are causing evacuations as well, including the Cook's Peak Fire, which burned nearly 60,000 acres with around 90% containment, and the Cerro Palado Fire, which has burned almost 27,000 acres with just 13% containment. The governor expects more losses in these fires, and the president did not respond to her request by this morning. I'm Koda Babcock, and that's all for National News. Menthol cigarettes have been marketed to youth for decades, and for the first time in U.S. history, the Food and Drug Administration proposed rules that would prohibit menthol cigarette sales, along with flavored cigars. These two tobacco products have harmed youth, and especially black youth in the U.S., Black Americans make up a disproportionate amount of people who smoke and make up over 40% of early deaths due to menthol cigarette use. Today, KCSU News is joined by President Matthew Myers from the Campaign for Tobacco-Free Kids to talk about what this rule means for public health. Thanks so much for lending us your time today. Thanks for having me on. So can you explain a little bit about the differences in menthol cigarettes and standard cigarettes and how that leads to an increase in popularity and addiction? Sure. Um, The proposed rules um, by the FDA actually will do more to reduce youth tobacco use and reduce health disparities than any action um, the government could possibly undertake. And it's for several reasons. First, menthol makes it easier for kids to start. It coats their throat. That's the reason that close to half of all children who start smoking do so using menthol cigarettes. But second, and what's really insidious, is menthol makes it harder to quit The chemical interaction with menthol makes it harder for someone who wants to quit and tries to quit to succeed in doing so. It's the reason that menthol smokers die at lung cancer and heart disease rates at higher levels than others. And because the tobacco industry has targeted the African-American community, it's a major cause of the health disparity in lung cancer and heart disease death rates. So how does the history of menthol cigarette advertising make this new rule a win for both public health and social justice advocates alike? This is truly a social justice issue. You know, 50 years ago, um, African-Americans who smoked um, didn't smoke menthols. Less than fewer than 10 percent did. The tobacco industry saw the African-American community as a profit center, and they targeted their advertising like a laser beam on that community. The consequences have been truly tragic. Today, 85% of African-Americans smoke menthol, not because they like them better, but because the industry targets them. It is the reason that menthol cigarettes account for 41% of the excess lung cancer and heart disease death rates, premature death rates in that community. So the new rule comes partially out of this University of Michigan study that was published last year, which intended to track the harms of menthol cigarettes. Can you tell us a little bit about what that study found? The University of Michigan took a look and found that menthol cigarettes were responsible for over 10 million additional smokers and close to 400,000 additional deaths as a result of it. They also found that those death rates fall disproportionately on the African-American community. It's the reason that this is such an important social justice issue. There are few things we could do that would reduce health disparities, which were so badly exposed during COVID. There's an important point as well. The FDA rule will probably take 
one to two or three years to um, be finalized and implemented. States have the opportunity to take action even quicker. And legislation is pending in Colorado that would protect Colorado's children and African-American community right away. So how do you think that the tobacco industry has really used its wealth of resources to avoid being held accountable for public issues such as menthol cigarette use? The tobacco industry has used its money in two devastating ways. First, by marketing to the African-American community in ways that increase tobacco use and increase the death rate in that community. But second, by giving small amounts of money to African-American political leaders and influencers in order to silence their voices, and that's really tragic. A small amount of political giving has allowed the tobacco industry to make billions of dollars in profits off of the African-American community. So this new policy, while important and historic, is seen by some as a double-edged sword. So while it prevents people from picking up smoking based on racial or age-based marketing, it also means that adults could be punished legally for using an addictive product that was legal when they developed the addiction. Can you explain how this impacts adults already addicted to menthol cigarettes and other forms of flavored tobacco? Well, the, the good news about how this proposed rule has been crafted is that it won't make it illegal for individuals to smoke. It won't give police a reason for um, approaching individuals. It is enforced solely against manufacturers, distributors, and retailers. FDA was very clear. This won't make the act of smoking illegal. It won't make it illegal to possess any particular cigarette. What it will do is it will prevent manufacturers from marketing these products to these populations. That's also the good news about the legislation being considered in Colorado. It won't make it illegal for an individual to use the product or possess the product. The sole enforcement tool will be against manufacturers, distributors, and retailers. So when this new role was being drafted, the tobacco industry fought it and continues to fight it by playing up Black Americans' fear of over-policing and potential abuse in their communities by police through charges. So how do you think that this is being responded to by organizations like the Campaign for Tobacco-Free Kids and your partners at the African-American Tobacco Control Leadership Council? We are as concerned about over-policing in the African-American community as anybody is. And we urge, and FDA has followed, and the legislation in Colorado follows the notion that it is very specifically targeted to avoid that concern. The FDA has been explicit. The drafters of the legislation in Colorado have been explicit. This is not to be used as an excuse for police to enter into these communities, to approach individuals, or to charge anybody with possession or use. You know, the tragic part of this is that every time any tobacco control measure is proposed that will reduce tobacco use and the profits of the companies, they claim it will result in over-policing. They claim it will be used as an excuse against individuals. All they're really protecting is their own bottom line. So as manufacturers are going to be targeted for this, um, that means that menthol cigarettes are going to be less available. Um, so what resources are available for adults who might especially be looking to quit before menthol cigarette production ceases? Um, it's a very good question. 
Um, our organization, as well as many other organizations, are encouraging the federal government and state and local governments to do more to make free cessation of services available to every individual, whether they're a menthol smoker or not, in order to help them quit smoking. You know, we have data um, out of Canada that four years ago banned the sale of menthol cigarettes. And what they found was that a dramatically higher number of former menthol smokers were able to successfully quit and improve their health as a result of that. If the Canadian experience is followed in the United States, it could save like a million lives. So how does your organization really support youth in avoiding nicotine addiction? And what do you think needs to be done on a federal level to hold the tobacco industry accountable for harm that cannot be undone by prevention alone? First, I think it is incredibly important to realize that we actually know how to reduce youth tobacco use. We have done so, and you have done so successfully in Colorado. What we have found is that the only impediment to reducing youth tobacco use is the tobacco industry's opposition and their continued marketing. Banning the sale of the kind of flavored products, menthol cigarettes, flavored e-cigarettes, flavored cigars, will result in a dramatic reduction in the number of kids who start. And that is a key long-term. The second thing that I think is critically important is that we know if we do this on a nationwide or on a statewide basis and prohibit the manufacturing and distribution of those products, it will result in fewer smokers, a healthier population, fewer people dying from lung cancer and heart disease, a more health equity in the key populations, um, and that we have the tools to do it. In Colorado, you have often been a role model, both in reducing youth use and assisting adults to quit. This will make um, the progress you have made a result in a fundamental long-term change. Is there anything else you'd like to add today? I think one of the most important issues that we're talking about here today is that this is both a public health and a social justice issue. The tobacco industry has targeted the African-American community, the LGBTQ community, and other communities with tragic consequences. We have seen that when we reduce tobacco use in these populations, we reduce lung cancer rates, heart disease rates, and produce healthier families. We have to remember that most long-term smokers die in their most productive years, depriving their families of the wealth that comes from being able to continue to work. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having us. For those just tuning in, that was Matthew Myers, the president of the Campaign for Tobacco-Free Kids. He joined us to speak about a new rule that would prohibit menthol cigarettes sale and manufacturing. To hear the full interview, listen on Spotify at KCSU News. KCSU programming is supported by Fort Collins Concert Venue, 830 North, featuring live music, bowling, and arcade. Tickets, concert calendar, and bowling reservations are available at 830NorthFortCollins.com or by searching 830 North.
my name is Eliza Drotar. This is your RMR Sports Report. In women's softball, the team is now 17-23, and 23, winning all three of their games against Nevada at home this weekend. They will be playing against UNLV this weekend in Vegas. In track and field, the team ended their regular season at the Fresno State Invitational. They took a couple first-place finishes and many podium finishes. They are taking part in the Mountain West Tournament this week. In women's golf, the team took 8th out of 9 in the Mountain West Championship, and in men's golf, they took 2nd place in the Mountain West Championship. In the NFL draft, Trey McBride was picked at the end of the 2nd round by the Arizona Cardinals, and Ray Stonehouse was picked up in free agency by the Tennessee Titans after the draft. My name is Eliza Drotar. This has been your RMR Sports Report. This is Ellie Shannon with your tech news. TikTok is opening a new way for creators to make money. TikTok plans to start sharing a cut of revenue with top creators when their videos run alongside certain ads. The program is going to be similar to YouTube's and could lead to more significant payouts. The program will be called TikTok Pulse and allows ads to be specifically run alongside the top 4% of videos on TikTok. Any creator and publisher that has more than 100,000 followers will be able to receive a cut. TikTok will share 50% of ad revenue from Pulse with these approved creators. As of now, the company still does not have a substantial way for creators to make money, but this will change that. The company Cameo, which lets you pay a celebrity to record a custom message or hop on a video call with you, has announced that it's laying off 87 employees, or around a quarter of its staff. According to Mitchell Clark of The Verge, the company went from just over 100 to nearly 400 employees during lockdown, but market conditions have changed rapidly since then. Co-founder and CEO of Cameo, Stephen Galanis, posted to Twitter expressing his sadness and even told other companies to hire these employees if Cameo happened to be on their resume. Three NASA astronauts and a European astronaut are returning home from the International Space Station, capping off their six-month mission. The crew worked with Russian cosmonauts and hosted the first all-private crew to visit the orbiting outpost. According to Jackie Waddles of CNN News, the crew climbed aboard their SpaceX Crew Dragon capsule last night just after midnight. They will spend all of today flying through orbit as their spacecraft maneuvers closer to the edge of the Earth's atmosphere. On Friday, the most dangerous part of the mission will occur as SpaceX Crew Dragon will streak back into the atmosphere while traveling at more than 22 times the speed of sound. The crew will be put through intense G-forces and then their capsule will deploy parachutes and float to a splashdown landing off the coast of Florida. That's all for your tech news. Thanks for listening. I'm Ellie Shannon, and now, here's the weather. Today was warm and currently cloudy with a high of 70 degrees and a low in the mid-40s. Friday, expect temperatures to reach nearly 80 degrees for the high and 50 for the low, once again with partly cloudy conditions. Moving into the weekend, Saturday we'll be seeing mostly sunny skies, with a high of over 80 degrees and a low in the upper 40s. Sunday cools back down to a high under 70 degrees and a low, once again around the mid-40s with partly cloudy conditions. 
I'm Coda Babcock for KCSU News, and you're listening to my final Rocky Mountain Review. In the fall, Portia Cook and Kira McKinley take over as your new hosts. Information from this segment comes from the Weather Channel. And that's all for today. We just wanted to thank Damien Castile for our amazing theme music that's playing right now. We'd like to thank our guests today, as well as Portia Cook, Thomas Taylor, David DeMuth, Stevie Jones, Hannah Copeland, Bryn McCall, Jack Balsley, London Shell, Hannah Hitchcock, Elliot Hutchinson, Eric Zhang, Brennan Cole, Bridget Bandell, Eliza Droder, Dylan King, Michelle Ellis, Ben Haney, Ben Kruger, Anna Schwabi, Marie Tanksley, Peter Walk, and the rest of the staff here at KCSU and Rocky Mountain Student Media. We couldn't do this without you. And I'd like to thank you, Coda. And I'd like to thank you, Allie. And we finally couldn't do this without you, dear listener. Thank you. <laughs>